Now, last time I attempted to lay a foundation for our understanding of worship, and in that sermon we saw that true worship is a heartfelt response to God for who he is and what he has done. And we saw from Matthew and Isaiah that worshiping God starts in the heart. In our hearts, we value something more than anything else. It's what is most important to us, what we think about the most, what we love the most, what we put our hope in. And we saw that in both Jesus' day and Isaiah's day, God's people were attempting to look like they were worshiping God, yet all they had were some outward practices and rituals. What they lacked was genuine trust in God, genuine awe of God, genuine submission to his holy lordship. So God says about them in Isaiah 29, 13, This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. So he said last time that true worship begins in the heart. Only a heart that is valuing God above all else is truly worshiping him. But we basically stayed at the individual level, meaning that we only talked about how we as individuals respond to God from our hearts. We didn't talk about what it means to worship the Lord together as God's people. Now, I want to be clear. On one level, all of life is meant to be worshipful. We're meant to live each moment of our days responding to all that God is and all that he's done for us. And we can do this in a variety of ways. We're mowing the grass. We're going to work. We're doing laundry. We're we're sitting down with a friend for coffee, playing in a pool. We can worship as we read the Bible, as we pray, as we sing along to a worship album. And I hope we're doing all of these activities in response to who God is and what he has done so that he will be honored. But what we're going to talk about today is what worship is to look like when the church gathers. We call this corporate worship. It's the worship of the church when it comes together for weekly worship services. And to start with, I want to give you a definition for corporate worship that your elders came up with. As I mentioned last time, the elders worked off and on for about a year and a half to create a vision for worship here at OEFC. And here's what we came up with. Now, I want to warn you, it it sounds long and complicated, and there's no way you'll remember it all. That's okay. Sometimes when we're trying to go deeper into something, it sounds complicated and confusing at first. You have the definition in your bulletin insert, so you can look back on it if you want to. But here it is, real quickly. Corporate worship is the gathered church's appropriate, grace-enabled proclamation of and response to God's self-revelation of his character and deeds, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, that results in God being honored and his people being satisfied in him. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, but the reason it is a lot is because worship is beautiful, but it's very complex. But like anything complex, it can be broken down and explained so that you can see how all the parts work together. So what I want to do in this sermon, and in the rest of the sermon, and then the next two that I get to give, would be just to to do this, to break this down for us. I hope you'll see with me how amazing it is that we get to come together and worship the Lord together as a body. So this week, we're only going to talk about two parts of that definition, the gathering of God's people and what appropriate worship is. So our main point this morning is simply this. The church is called to gather for appropriate worship of God. So let's start with this first idea, gathering. God calls his people to gather for corporate worship. 
Now, maybe that seems quite obvious to you. I mean, here we are, after all, gathered for worship. Well, don't check out on me yet. There's lots more for us to see in this word gathering. Now, normally we work through a passage, a specific passage each week, very carefully. This week, I'm going to be drawing from texts all over the Bible. In the fancy language, we call that systematic theology. It's attempting to see the whole, how the whole Bible talks about one subject. So please stay with me as we jump around and attempt to see how God's word talks about this idea of gathering. Let's start in Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In Genesis 12, we read for the first time about God calling out a particular family to be his special people in the earth. This started with Abraham's family, which God said would grow into an entire nation. And as we keep reading the account of this family, we find out that they do end up growing into a large nation called the nation of Israel. But by the time we get to Exodus, we discover that this nation is cruelly enslaved to another nation, the nation of Egypt. So Exodus is the story of how God went head-to-head with the king of Egypt and delivered his people out of the king's control. God called Moses to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tell him that he demanded to have his people set free. Now most of us know this part of the story, but do you remember the purpose of their freedom? What did God tell Moses to tell Pharaoh was the purpose of setting them free? In Exodus 3.18, God tells Moses this, You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The reason God gives Moses for Israel to be set free is so that they can go and sacrifice to him. And what do we know about sacrifice from the Bible? It is a form of worship. So God is telling Pharaoh, you need to let my people go so they can worship me. This is exactly what we read in Exodus 4, 22 and 23 in the NIV translation. There God tells Moses, Then Pharaoh said, Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go so he may worship me. So just notice with me that right at the beginning of God calling out this nation, from this evil grip of this wicked king, God tells them that it is so that they can worship him. In other words, God's people have always had a unique call on their lives to worship God. But as we keep reading Exodus, we start to get a picture of what this worship is meant to be. And what we find is that this group of people are meant to do certain acts of worship together as a group. They're meant to gather together as a unified group to do something. In chapter chapter 15, we find them singing together after Pharaoh's army is destroyed. Later in chapter 24, we see them listening together to the words of the covenant that God gave Moses. And then starting in chapter 25, we see them commanded by God to come together to construct a tabernacle, to give to support its construction, and to participate in the ceremonial and sacrificial activities that would take place there. The point is, Worship was not merely to be a private 
event. Now this is not to say that individuals didn't worship God on their own in a variety of different ways, but the picture we get as the storyline continues to unfold is that gathering together for worship was a vital part of what it meant to be a member of God's people. We see the people singing together in Numbers 21:17, celebrating God's provision of water. In Joshua 8:34, the people gather to hear Joshua read the words God gave Moses. We see Deborah and Barak in Judges 5:1 leading a public song about God's deliverance in battle. In 1 Corinthians 16, David and all Israel celebrate in song as the ark is brought into Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 9, 3, we read about the people making confession and worshiping together. In 2 Kings 23, 2, Josiah read the book of the law of the people as they gathered to hear. And in Nehemiah 8, 2, Ezra read from the law to all the people, young and old. And he read for part of the day, each day for seven days in a row. Now beyond these examples, we see God commanding his people to gather to hear his word. In Deuteronomy 31, 11, we find that God commands all of Israel to gather every seven years to hear the law read. As we move to the New Testament, we find this pattern of gathering for worship continued. We find out that the Jews were meeting weekly in synagogues to hear God's word. We see the disciples and Jesus singing together in Matthew 26, 30. We read about Paul preaching to the gathered church in Acts 20. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives specific instructions about worship when the church gathers together. And in Colossians 4.16 and 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Paul tells them that he wants them to gather the church together and for them to hear and read the letter he's sending to them. And in case we think gathering is just a temporary thing, in Revelations 15 we get a glimpse of worship happening around the throne of God. Again, it's a group event where God is being praised. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear that God's people are to gather together. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Then we get some very pointed commands about what we are to do when we gather for worship. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Or Ephesians 5.19 Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Here's the point. Worship is not meant to be merely an individual event, a private event, a one-on-one encounter with God. Now, yes, those things happen. Can this happen as you open your Bible at home in your private devotions? Of course. When you're taking a hike and you encounter the beautiful things that God has made? Of course. But that's not all there is to worship. That's just one side of it. That's the individual side. There's another side to worship. It is the worship in a group of people. It's an event with others in which you do certain things together. I'll never forget when this finally hit home for me personally. It was only in the last eight years or so. For most of my life, from the time I was about a sophomore in high school until I was about age 32 or so, I had treated worship as a very 
individualistic thing. What I mean is that I viewed worship with a gathered church much in the same way that I would view worship at home in my private devotions, kind of as a one-on-one encounter with God. So though I could be in a room full of people worshiping God, I would tend to view that time individualistically. I might bow privately where I was at and pray or sing to the Lord and kind of shut out everything else going on around me. Now this doesn't mean that I didn't participate. I did. I just didn't understand that when the church gathers together for worship, I shouldn't be thinking about a one-on-one meeting with God as much as a group meeting with God in which we do certain things together and we seek to, to contribute to each other's edification. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. In some churches that I've been a part of, the lights are dimmed during the singing. I'm sure many of you have experienced this too. Now, now please hear me. I am not saying it's wrong to dim the lights. It's not sin to dim the lights. Okay? But without even realizing it, what does that communicate to the congregation? It communicates that the stage, which is still fully lit, is the most important focal point, and that you are to interact with the stage in a very individualistic way, kind of like a concert. You're there to watch them perform. But if the lights are left on, what does that say? Here again, we can see everyone still, and clearly. Everyone is still a participant. Everyone's contribution matters. Nobody's hidden in the dark. Rather than a one-on-one interaction between me and the stage and God, I'm introduced to a group interaction with God. Maybe another analogy would be helpful. In individual sports like figure skating, it's common for them to dim the lights and to put the spotlight on the one skater or two skaters that are performing. But how strange would it be for a group activity like hockey for them to dim the lights and then put the spotlight on one player and follow him around the whole game? The point I'm trying to make is this. When we gather for worship, it's a group event. And what we need to ask ourselves then is, what does that imply for how we approach worship as a body each week as we come together? There are four things here. First of all, it means that we don't come in expecting just to interact with me and God and no one else. We're actually supposed to hear each other sing. Do you remember what Ephesians 5.19 said? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's a part of us that needs the encouragement and the inspiration of others around us. When we hear them declare truths about God, or praise him for who he is, it spurs us on to do the same. And we often need powerful reminders, especially when life is falling apart and our faith is weak. You never know how your worship of the Lord will rub off on someone else around you. I'm constantly encouraged as a worship leader when I hear your voices and I see you engage in worship. It spurs me on to go deeper in worship. The second thing this means, it means that we should expect to participate as a vital part of the event. Worship is never meant to be a performance in which one person or a group of people do something on stage and everyone else sits passively by and watches them. When the sermon is preached, 
You should, be, you should be actively listening and responding to the message. When someone is praying, you should be praying with them. When someone's singing, you should sing too. And at rare times when we ask you to listen to a song that's being sung, take that opportunity to receive the song's message and respond to God through it. Third, the fact that corporate worship is a group activity means that we aren't merely gathering to seek our own edification, but that of the entire body. This was Paul's burden in 1 Corinthians 14 when he urged them to use their spiritual gifts for the maximum edification of the church, not just for themselves personally. The goal when we gather together is not just for me to be edified, but for everyone to be edified. Now one very practical way we do this is by embracing different styles of music. Now I know all of us have certain preferences when it comes to music. And most of us have backgrounds in which we got accustomed to certain styles. For some of us, singing a contemporary song really connects deeply with us. And we find ourselves eagerly engaging. On the other hand, that same person may find an older hymn to be very difficult to engage with. The same is true for those who grew up singing hymns every Sunday. To them, worship would not be the same without them because they're accustomed to them and they appreciate the richness of the hymn's theology and their their bold declaration. That person may struggle when a praise chorus comes on, especially when certain lines are repeated over and over again. What's important to remember as we come together is that when a song is used, that you have difficulty connecting with, instead of checking out, instead of refusing to sing and participate, think of the other people in the congregation who are really helped by that song. The musical style might not be your favorite, or you might really dislike it, but the others in the room really connect with it well. And since you're a member of the body just like them, you can rejoice that they're being edified by that song. And the fourth thing, because corporate worship is a group activity that we are called to participate in, if you're not coming and participating regularly, something is very wrong in your walk with Christ. Now we know that some people can't come regularly to worship. Some people have to work, some people have illnesses that keep them at home. But for those who are physically able to gather, Participation in regular worship is not an option for a disciple of Christ. It's not something we can choose or not choose. It's not morally neutral. It's disobedience not to come regularly. Do you remember Hebrews 10, 24, and 25? We are not to neglect meeting together. Now, unfortunately, the pandemic has made this idea that we can just kind of do church at home, even more popular than before. I think it's safe to say that there is a pandemic of people now who think that sitting down in their living room and streaming a sermon is what God wants them to do. It is not. How can you fulfill the command to admonish each other in song by staying at home? How can you pursue edifying someone beside yourself when you're the only person in the room? Brothers and sisters, watching a sermon 
on an electric, electronic device can never replace our responsibility to show up as a member of God's called out people and worship him publicly together with the body of Christ. My heartfelt concern, if, if that is you, perhaps you're watching the sermon today, my concern is that you might be making a new idol and worshiping that. It could be a number of things. Perhaps it's the idol of comfort and convenience. I know it's what's easier to stay at home. But obedience and love for Christ are never easy. And worship of Christ costs something. But it's so worth it. Don't worship a new idol at home. Come gather and worship God with God's people. We all know that there are times when we can't make it to worship for a variety of reasons. But coming together for worship should remain a higher priority than hobbies and other activities. I'm not saying it's wrong to miss a Sunday for a hobby or an activity. That's what I'm saying. But if our hobbies and activities are always a higher priority than coming to worship the Lord together, it's pretty apparent which is more important to us. Perhaps we're worshiping them instead of worshiping our Lord. Perhaps we aren't worshiping him the way we ought to worship. That gets at the second part of what I want to talk to you about tonight, or this morning in corporate worship, which is this. What is acceptable to God in corporate worship? Now, it doesn't take us long as we look through the Bible to figure out that God does not receive all of the worship that men and women attempt to bring him. Right away in Genesis 4, we read about Cain's attempt to bring a sacrifice to God, which God rejects. Something was not right, and God did not accept it. He did, he did accept Abel's sacrifice, however. Later we read of God giving specific commands for worship. The first two commands in the Ten Commandments relate to worship in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in, in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Then God goes on to give very detailed instructions for worship at the tabernacle under the sacrificial system. But we see right away what happens when Israel, under Aaron's leadership, ignores God's commands and begins to worship the golden calf. God takes offense and threatens to wipe out the entire nation. This causes Moses to intercede and God relents. But the people are still, are still punished for their sin. Later on, we see Aaron's sons decide to ignore God's instructions for worship. In Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, we read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Later we read about another pair of sons, this time those of the priest Eli. They aren't much better than Aaron's sons. They decided to ignore God's instructions related to sacrificing meat. We read in 1 Samuel 2.17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. In the next chapter, God calls this blasphemy. 
And he declares judgment on Eli for not stopping them. Or how about the story of Uzzah, who failed to follow the instructions about how to carry the ark? In 2 Samuel 6, we read that he reached out and took hold of it, attempting to keep it from falling off the cart that it was traveling on. But God had given very specific instructions about how to carry the ark. The priests were to do this with poles, not touching it with their hands. So 2 Samuel 6, 7 records, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there before the ark of God. What is the point of these stories? The point is not that God is eager to take human life. We know from Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The point of these stories is to show that God is holy. He is separate from us. He's not only morally pure, but he's on a, he's on a level of existence and importance that we never will be. There is an infinite gap between us and God. So when we draw near to him, which he eagerly desires us to do, we don't just flippantly decide to do whatever we want to do. No, he's told us in his word what he wants. And when his commands regarding worship are ignored, he rightly responds with righteous anger. Do you remember the problem in Isaiah's day? They were drawing near to God with their lips, but their hearts were far away. And because their hearts were far away, they were engaged in all kinds of wicked activities. But they still came to the temple, and they pretended to worship God. How did God respond to that? Isaiah 1, 11-15. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my cords? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. And in the prophet Malachi's day, the people were again ignoring God's commands about the sacrifices they were to bring to him for worship. God says, enough! I'd rather shut it all down. Malachi 1.10 Oh, oh that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle on my altar, kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Can you imagine what it would be like if you pulled into the church parking lot next week and the doors were locked? (laughs) Here God is saying, stop! I'd rather have you all cease these things you're doing that you're calling worship because you're not doing what I commanded you to do. 
So the point in all this is very clear. God has told his people how they are to worship him. And he expects that they follow their, these instructions. In the last sermon, we saw that God wants us to draw near with our hearts. To value him above all. To trust him above all. To honor him as Lord above all. This is where true worship begins. But God also gives us instructions about what we are to do when we come together. Another way of saying this is that God requires appropriate forms in worship. And all we mean by a form is a worshipful activity that we do together because we are commanded to do it or we're given examples of it in Scripture. For example, some of the forms that we use here at OEFC are singing songs together, preaching the word, praying together. And we adopt these forms because we see them in God's word and we believe we're commanded to do them. Now, some of these forms we've already seen today as prescribed in God's word, particularly we talked about the ones where we see God's people singing and hearing God's word. And some of these forms were first introduced in the Old Testament, and yet they still carry over to today in the New Covenant. Others, like the sacrificial system, are not directly carried over in the New Covenant, but are rather fulfilled or adapted in the New Covenant. So let's take a minute and talk about some of the forms that we use here at OEFC. You'll notice that we always start with a call to worship. This is actually something that we see God do and the leaders of God's people do throughout Scripture. God ultimately is the one who summons us to worship him. And the Psalms are full of these summons. One good example is Psalm 95.1, where the psalmist is calling us to come and worship. He says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We all always have a number of prayers in our gatherings on Sunday mornings. We see prayer used in a variety of ways in the gatherings of God's people throughout Scripture. Some of those include dedication, confession, intercession, commission, or request for healing. We've already mentioned congregational singing. There's much more we could say here. But if we just take a glimpse through the Psalms, we see songs being used in the congregation for many things, for praising God, for thanking God, for proclaiming God's saving acts, for openly declaring God's faithfulness, salvation, and love, to bless God, to exalt God, to express bold lament. Or what about our affirmation of faith? Throughout Scripture, we see God's people reading and listening to God's word in their gatherings. And Paul specifically tells Timothy to do this. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. We also gather to hear God's word preached or heralded. Again, we see all throughout Scripture the Bible In the Bible, the proclamation, teaching, and explanation of God's word and the gospel. We just read that in 1 Timothy 4.13, but again, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4.2 to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Or, as we read a few minutes ago from Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. Once a month, we celebrate 
communion here. We do this because Christ told us to do this in remembrance of him. 1 Corinthians 11. We also do baptisms from time to time. Again, because Christ commanded us to do that in Matthew 28, 19. And you notice that we close each service each week with the benediction. Aaron spoke a blessing over God's people in Numbers chapter 6. And we see this continue throughout scripture. So these are the forms that we've adopted here at OEFC, and we believe that we are instructed to do them week in and week out as we gather. And what makes these forms worshipful is that they are leading the people in receiving what God has revealed or leading God's people in responding to God in some way. Another way to say this is, in these forms we are either proclaiming truth or responding to it. And sometimes we're doing both. For example, when we sing, we declare certain truths about God or we say certain things to God. But singing is also a way for us to respond to him with a host of emotions. Or how about preaching? The preacher heralds the word of God. But the people are to be receiving it and responding to it, taking it to heart. How do we know if our forms of worship truly are acceptable to God? Well, first of all, we ask if God tells us to do them, and we see examples in Scripture. Secondly, let me think about this for a minute. Just because someone stands up here and preaches or says a few things doesn't mean it's acceptable, right? What is our standard? Again, it's the Word of God. If the content of our proclamation doesn't line up with God's Word, it's not acceptable worship. And if our responses don't line up with God's Word, It's also not acceptable worship. So let's take a moment to talk about acceptable responses to God in worship. Now it's pretty obvious what some some responses that are are not worshipful. For example, if we hear God's word and we just completely reject it, ignore it, that's not worship. Or if during our singing we aren't really praising God, but we're critically analyzing what everyone else is doing around us, that's not worship. So what kind of responses do we want to have in worship together? Well, God hasn't left us just to guess or make up our own. Rather, he's given us in Scripture a wide variety of ways in which we are to respond to him in worship. Now, this really opened my eyes when I saw this for the first time. The Bible really commands us to respond in a number of different ways. These are some of them, and I want to just give you this list to open up your heart to ways in which you can grow in responding to God. This list was adapted from a list that my friend and worship leader, Jason French, put together. Some of the ways in which we are are to appropriately respond to God, which are given to us in Scripture, are these. With utmost adoration, with greatest thanksgiving, with unrivaled devotion, with total trust, unsurpassed submission, with complete obedience, with foremost reverence, with absolute awe, with supreme service, with paramount joy, with incomparable treasuring, with preeminent praise, with ultimate dread, with unparalleled worth, with unequaled exaltation, with bold lament, 
with sincere contrition and with an overwhelming hunger for his presence. Now, when I first heard that list, it really convicted me and challenged me. It showed me that I have a lifetime of learning to do when it comes to responding to God rightly. I would like to grow in my responses to God, to learn more what it is to please him in worship. But notice that each of these varied responses must come from a heart that's been radically changed by God. What we need so desperately is a heart that responds to God in the highest and most sincere way. A heart that truly loves God more than anything else. That is the key unifying element in all of our responses to God. God deserves the highest and the best and the most authentic response imaginable. Why? Because he alone is supreme, unparalleled, ineffably glorious, perfect. We may love many other things, but God alone deserves our highest, most exclusive love. Now, sadly, we know that all of our responses to God fall short. Truth is that none of us love him or fear him or submit to him or give thanks to him or hunger for him perfectly in the way that he deserves. So are we to spend our days trying to respond appropriately to God only to live with this constant reality that our efforts were not enough and that we've not pleased God and just kind of feel guilty and crummy all the time? answer is no. And again, this is where the gospel becomes so precious to us. Brothers and sisters, in union with Christ, our flawed yet authentic responses to God become acceptable. Listen to what Peter has to say to believers in 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Your spiritual sacrifices, your worship is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's because we are in him. Or consider Hebrews 13.5. Through him, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In Christ, we can actually offer up worship that pleases the Father. This should be gloriously liberating for us. Instead of wallowing in our imperfections, we can rest in his condescending, fatherly enjoyment of our imperfect praises. I love how worship leader and author Bob Coughlin describes this. He says this, Hidden in Christ, all our offerings are exalted because when they are joined to the atoning sacrifice of the Savior, God accepts them as though his own son were offering them. We can rejoice that in Christ, our worship as we bring it, imperfect as it is, is pleasing to God. And we can rejoice that he's teaching us little by little, to grow in our worship of him. When we consider the array of responses that God calls us to, 
it's obvious that this is something that we have the privilege to grow into the rest of our lives. Whether you're 10 years old here, or 20, or 30, or 40, or 50, or 70, or 80, we can keep growing until the day we get to stand and join the heavenly throng in the most amazing corporate worship experience ever. According to Revelation 15, we will join and sing this to God. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So as we close, I want to talk first to the person here who does not yet know Christ. Perhaps all this talk about worshiping God seems foreign. We'd love to tell you more. There are a lot of people in this room who would love to share with you more about why God is worthy of our worship. Don't leave this morning without asking someone. And if you're here and you know Christ already, let me just leave you with these questions this morning. What might be different if we came each week excited about helping each other worship, rubbing off on each other, being inspired and inspiring others to worship? Really, each one of you is a vital part of each worship service. What might be different if we came in longing to respond to God rightly, to grow in our ability to appreciate his worth? Brothers and sisters, none of us have arrived. But we have the Holy Spirit in us, alive and at work. Let's press on to respond to him more and more. Let's pray together.